since I was 13, um, my mom somehow knew that computer science is going to be, you know, kind of big and like needed in the future. So she did send me to this like, like it's called tuition classes in Sri Lanka, but it's like private classes outside of school. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. On the show today is Kosala Hemanchandra, the founder and CEO of My Ethereum Wallet. That was the first Ethereum wallet to come onto the market in 2015. And I talked with Kosala about growing up in Sri Lanka, uh, about how his mom wanted him to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, which is uh, one more option than I was given as a child by my parents. Uh, we talk about him working on uh, the Ethereum testnet before it had gone public and how exciting it was to be actually writing code and working on uh, ways to make uh, Ethereum better before it had even launched. And uh, we kind of finished the conversation by talking about how uh, developers in Ethereum and other smart contract uh, systems can build uh, products that are easier to use uh, for a mass audience. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's get to it. Okay, so um, I know that uh, you are based in LA these days, um, Kosala, but did you grow up here or tell me a little bit about your background? Yeah, so um, I did, uh, I was born and born and in a way raised in Sri Lanka up until uh, I was 17. Um, and then when I was 17, I decided, okay, it's time for me to um, go outside of Sri Lanka and continue my education. And uh, two choices were London and LA. And uh, because of a friend who was here, uh, I decided, okay, Los Angeles is the place. And then I'm just going to go choice. to LA. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I am 100% sure I made the right choice on that one. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, I went to school here, uh, I did computer engineering. I went to CSUN, um, and, um, graduated from there. And then towards my like senior year, that's when I actually really got into crypto. Okay. Um, we'll get to that. But first of all, what, um, what was it like growing up in Sri Lanka? Do you, you come from a big family or what, and what part of the country were you in? Um, I, was kind of, I mean, Sri Lanka is a pretty small island in a way when you compare. I think um, it's smaller than LA County. So <laughs> that's how small it is. Wow, for real? And, uh, <laughs> I yeah. have no idea. That's amazing. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of grew up in like the center part of the island and then moved towards the, the capital, which is Colombo, which is the, I think, most famous city in Sri Lanka. Um, and, um, so yeah, I, I kind of switched between two schools, uh, while I was studying there. I initially studied in this one area called Anuradhapura, which is like a center of Sri Lanka. And then I went to school there until sixth grade and then moved to Royal College, which is, which was in, uh, Colombo, uh, still is, um, in Colombo. And then, uh, that's where I studied up until I was 17 years old. Um, and then, um, yeah, so, and then, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the only kid, so <laughs> what were you, uh, it was uh, really... What were you interested in in school? Like, did anything, like, did you just kind of do it to do it, or did you find something that, like, actually kind of grabbed your interest as a child? Um, to be honest, initially, so uh, up until 17, I was going to be a doctor, 
Okay. I think it's mainly like Asian parents either wants an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. <laughs> like those three are the options. And then my mom really wanted me to be a doctor. It's not just Asian um, parents, man. My parents said the same thing. It was doctor, <laughs> doctor or lawyer. Yeah, I had two choices. Those are the things. Yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, we, mom, we, we have that really engineer you. extra. Yeah, you got yeah. the engineer. Yep, that is that's so, a, a um, bonus. So yeah, she definitely wanted me to be a doctor. And um, I mean, yeah, up until I was, I was 17, I like did everything in that career path, uh, studying wise and everything. Um, but like uh, somehow, like I spent most of my time at the computer lab at school. Yeah. So deep inside, that's what I wanted. And uh, I think as I was growing up, my mom realized that too. She was a big supporter for me to you know, move out of the country, even though I was the only child. Um, it was definitely hard for her and then definitely hard for me as well to just like, uh, before that, I've never been to an outside country, like uh, except from Sri Lanka. Like I'd never been okay. to yeah. any other country and never been on a plane. So it was definitely a tough decision, hard decision. And um, and she was supportive, even though deep down, I'm, I know for 100%, I'm sure that she was you know, sad to let me go and, you know, as a parent, but, um, yeah. And then I, uh, 17, I, I was like, okay, I have to do this. I have to at least give it a shot. If things doesn't work out in a year, I'm gonna, I can always come back. You were going to English speaking schools. Is that how it worked? Like the Royal Academy you mentioned? Um, to be honest, a lot of people, I think because it was like we were under, we were part of like British colony. We were like one of the colonized countries. So ever since then, um, English became a mandatory part of school curriculum. So okay. there's like at least guaranteed like five classes per week or like three to five classes per week in every school. If they can have an English teacher, you know, there are obviously rural areas that like you cannot really have an sure. English teacher. But I, I was definitely lucky in that side of things because um both schools that i went to had like english teachers to teach english so before i before i came to us i was um somewhat you know like i i had the ability to speak write all that so yeah somewhat familiar cool. and when you say so you spent all your time in the computer lab were you actually coding at that point or were you playing tetris or like what was it <laughs> about computers was, that threw you in i was definitely coding since i was 13. so um there's also this thing i have actually never heard of it in in the us maybe it's happening in like one small part of school curriculum it's called uh, uh computer science olympiad it's like Olympic version of programming. It's like it's like you're competing with other programmers to write the most optimized code in like a couple of hours. Yeah, I've heard of that. I don't know if like the Olympiad. Yeah, um, or well, I mean, a hackathon is sort of along those lines, right? But yeah, I've I've heard of other where there's team competitions where you have to code to like a robot has to do some task. And like you're given an hour, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, like find okay, what is the shortest path to do, or like what's the most efficient program to figure out mm -hmm. this calculation? So um, I was getting trained for that when I was like fifteen, just because I was I was in the like the computer lab all the time, and then teachers over there like, oh yeah, you want to like get trained for this? I was like, yes, yeah, sure. Like, I'll let me give it a shot. And like, it's somewhat it's, it's something like that, and then. Since I was 13, 
um, my mom somehow knew that computer science is going to be, you know, kind of big and like needed in the future. So she did send me to list like, like it's called tuition classes in Sri Lanka, but it's like private classes outside of school. Sure. Yeah. So um, for like a couple of hours a day or like a couple of hours a week, she like, she used to send me to these like classes. And uh, ever since then, I kind of like, you know, grew up coding, learning things. And uh, I always definitely had the eagerness to learn coding for sure. That's great. Yeah. What was your mom? What did she do for her living? She's a, she's a teacher. Okay. So she, uh, she's a teacher and then eventually she became a principal. Now, now she's retired. Yeah. But that makes sense. She might've seen that coming, you know, through her teaching career yeah. or just like what was like kind of reading the writing on the wall. Yeah. Was your dad around or was he part of the picture? Yeah. So um, they're definitely separated now, but like growing up, I, maybe they were together until I was like three years old. So I don't remember much about my dad uh, growing up, but um, he's definitely like the engineering part is definitely coming from him because he was an engineer mm-hmm. at like a tele- big telecommunication uh, company in Sri Lanka. So um, I-, I know 100% that's like coding side, logical side, all that is coming from <laughs> coming from his side. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, we are still in talking terms. So I, I have nothing like, but like I, did, I grew up with my mom mainly. Yeah, that's and that's great that she was so supportive of you going into yeah. computer science and everything. Um, what else were you doing? Were you um, playing sports? Were you like hanging around in the streets, getting into trouble, or were you, were you a pretty good kid? <laughs> um, I think if one thing I hated is doing outdoor sports. Yeah, <laughs> I played chess for a while. <laughs> okay, so I was like, I'll do anything that I that doesn't make me sweat. Uh, also, speaking of that, I did swimming for a while too. It doesn't make you sweat, you know, like you sweat inside the pool. So. Yeah, you're immediately <laughs> washed right off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I did, if anything, as a sport, only thing that I did was like a physical sport was swimming. Okay. Uh, definitely not like a very outdoorsy person. Uh, did play chess for a little while. Um, that's, yeah, that's basically it. Other than that, I was just like, you know... So you mentioned Learning, earlier that your, your choices to go abroad were either London or Los Angeles. Did you? Yeah. And I, I think you might have said you had friends in both of those places and that's what made the choice. Like that's why you were choosing between those two or, or did I get that wrong? Yeah. So like uh, the friend who was in London was like through my mom. So, uh, but like the friend who was in LA was like through me, like I, I got to know him mm-hmm. and uh, he moved to LA and then I was like, Okay, like I feel like Los Angeles is much better. Like I wanna, I wanna go there because that's where all the tech companies, right? Like as a seventeen-year-old, you don't, you don't do like extreme research. You're like, where are the tech companies? Like I wanna go there. Yeah. And then, and then also before coming in, I thought like San Francisco and LA is super close to each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> I definitely learned my lesson. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. Um, so what year are we talking? When did you come to LA? And you were 2019, now... 2009, sorry, not 2019, 2009, 2019 was three years ago. <laughs> yeah. Seems like, seems like 12 years ago, <laughs> yeah. but, um, yeah. and what, uh, so, okay, that was right after the financial crisis. Um, but you are now going to be, a, um, a freshman at CSUN. 
Uh, no, I initially went to Glendale, Glendale College. Oh, really? And then oh, from wow. Glendale, I, I transferred to um, CSUN. Oh, that's funny. That's my hometown, Glendale. That's where I grew oh, up. Oh, really? Yeah. I used to play uh, baseball on that field uh, oh, at Glendale, wow. Glendale College. Yeah. It's um, a really beautiful college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, but then computer science was always sort of the goal here. That was like what you were heading for. Yeah. So the moment I moved here, I, I did computer science and then eventually I switched to computer engineering because I was like, okay, I know the programming side of things. Like I want to learn something new. So computer engineering, more like computer science plus engineering side of things, like how the processes work, so how to like build hardware, your own processes. Yeah, like yeah, hardware yeah. design sort of thing. Exactly. Okay. So uh, eventually I graduated with computer engineering. Okay. And that was from CSUN? Yeah. Yeah. What, um, where did you think you were going at that point? Like uh, that? So if you started in 2009, you were out like 2013, that was pretty early for Bitcoin, right? Unfortunately, I did not graduate that fast. Cause like, um, there's also a lot of lessons that as a immigrant student, you have to learn because no one, uh, is there to teach you is that there are different curriculums that you have to follow. If you're going to UC, it's a different one. If you're going to CS, system is a different one and I was following the UC for a while and then uh, I was like oh um, I, I can't afford a UC university so I mm-hmm. have to do CS uh, which is Cal State you know um, yeah. for those who are not familiar um, and uh, and then I had to switch so like my graduation year was 2016. Okay yeah. what um as you were going through all that though, like, did you, what was your plan? Did you have a plan of like, okay, I'm going to get this degree and I want to, you know, work for a startup or I want to go work for Microsoft or like, did you have like, uh, a, a vision in mind or? I always knew I had to do a computer software job. And then this is also where like uh, you, you mentioned you were talking with Taylor before. This is also where I actually met Taylor. Uh, I was a software programmer for this company based in Gardena. Mm-hmm. And then around the same time I joined, she also joined the company as a web designer. Okay. So uh, it kind of set Monaghan, my path. Who, yeah, Taylor yeah. Monahan, your co-founder with uh, my Ethereum wallet. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so, okay. So you guys, you, you meet her and that's sort of like South Bay area of Los Angeles, right? Sort of near Manhattan Yeah, Beach, in Gardena. Right, where she was, I think she yeah. grew up. Um, and okay, so... But was crypto like in the mix for you yet? Or when did that sort of no, like hit your radar? No, uh, I'm definitely going to say I was one of those people in 2009 uh, or like 2010, that time. I did hear about Bitcoin, but I was like, I'm not going to part like do anything about this like mm-hmm. scam internet token <laughs> that like everyone thinks going to be big. Totally. Um, it's all ones and zeros. I, How can it be worth anything? Yeah, I was like, what is this thing? Like, I'm, I can't make sense of anything. Um, but towards my senior, like, so this is 2014, 15. Uh, I looked into, so I got back into Bitcoin. So I, I like bought a Bitcoin miner and all that because like I fell in love with the technology behind it, not the actual like mm-hmm. the token because, you know, it's didn't really, I still didn't understand, okay, what's like, what it can do, uh, what's the purpose of it. But like, I really fell in love with the technology and um, started learning more about it. And then that's when kind of like Ethereum yellow paper came out. 
And then I was like, oh, okay, this is at least 100x better than Bitcoin. Hmm. Don't get me wrong, Bitcoin lovers. Like, I, I love Bitcoin <laughs> still. Like, nothing wrong with Bitcoin. But um, uh, facts are that, okay, Bitcoin can do certain things and Ethereum can do certain things. And Ethereum can, like, in, at, back in the day, I was like, at least like 100x better. So I'm just going to keep following this, like what's happening with Bitcoin, I mean, Ethereum. And um, that's what led to 2015 August, they launched the mainnet. And then I was on Reddit looking up, hey, um, and then like reading about Ethereum. And then people were having, you know, million different questions, how to unlock their wallet or mm -hmm. the pre-sale wallet, how to send transactions, send tokens and all that. Yeah, because it and was kind of complicated, right? Maybe we could walk through that with people because so yeah. what, what we're talking about here is when uh, Ethereum did, did a crowd sale, basically. It sold um, it sold Ether that didn't exist yet, basically, for Bitcoin. So you could buy in, but you, yeah. you know, so you had to send them your Bitcoin to a certain wallet, but it was really kind of clunky, right? And rather onerous. Uh, this was, yeah, no, this was definitely after. So like that part happened, that's the pre-sale, right? Um, you send, you send Bitcoin and then they'll give you yeah some tokens that doesn't exist yet. And I think honestly though, well, people yeah, that, who invested that, that is, in yeah, Ethereum, but, then, invest but like you didn't need your wallet until they were ready to give you the ether, which was like a year later or yeah, something. Which so is that, in 2015 like a, August. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. So I, I feel yeah. like yeah, that's where it seems like, um, the, the the user experience was pretty bad and, and it wasn't really like conducive to a lot of people jumping in there. Yeah, it was definitely command line, right? Like it's people, I mean, Kubernetes are amazing, but like they did a really good job actually getting Ethereum up and running, but like there was still not a UI to interact mm -hmm. with Ethereum. It was all command line. And the moment you say command line, people are already scared. They're like, yeah. "Oh, I don't, I don't yeah, want to do that." You're literally typing want... like on the command line of the of the yeah. monitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then they were having all all these issues, and then I was like, "Okay, I I know enough to put together." Because also, like, none of the libraries existed back then. None of the JavaScript libraries. So, like, I basically had to write all those libraries to unlock presale wallets, sign a transaction. Mm -hmm. And, and then put together a small UI uh, where I was like, this is the best I can do. And then it kind of like caught on. People like started using it. When I say people, there were probably like not that many, right? It's like maybe 100, 200 users mm -hmm. um, and on Reddit. And then that's already big enough. Like for me, I was like, oh, this is a website that I put together. It's easy. And then um, that's when I was like, hey, Taylor, by the way, she's a designer. She's a web designer. So I was like, hey, um, if you have some free time, uh, would you mind like doing something for this website? Like if you can change the design, like follow the Reddit, like they're asking for features. Mm -hmm. uh, like if you can make the design, I can. Because at this point, I was still going to school, um, still working. And then like only time that I had to work on my wallet was like whenever I come back home, maybe like 9 p.m. to like. 11 p.m. before I go to sleep, right? Or sometimes it depends. If the feature is very interesting, I might not sleep that night. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so, and then, uh, and then she was like, and she was doing freelance work. So I was like, okay, I can help you out with your freelance coding stuff. And then you can help me with like the design side of my the wallet. And yeah. Um, yeah, so that's like the start. And you guys had um, 
you were trying to figure out what to call it. You told me this story and I just wondered to hear from your side, like you were looking on like GoDaddy or something for, for domains. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, we were going through like, okay, it's what is it basically, yeah. right? Eat, eat the wallet, right? Mm-hmm. And then Ether Wallet was taken and then GoDaddy suggested, how about my Ether Wallet? I was like, yeah. fine, I'll buy my Ether Wallet. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I'm glad that my, it turned out to be my Ether Wallet because now our acronym is Mew, not yeah. Ew. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been Edelby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, much better, much better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, but even then, like, uh, like a lot of the community at this point seems like, you know, a lot of, or a lot of the early users really needed a lot of like, they needed their hand to be held and they needed to be walked through a lot of stuff. Um, did you remember that sort of process and like trying to make things as easy for people as you could to like onboard them into this new thing? Yeah. So, I mean, like Ethereum brought, it was, I, I, I still call it like a trendsetter, right? Before that, like smart contract was not a thing. Mm-hmm. It was just Bitcoin and Bitcoin-like tokens, right? Like you can only transfer value, like value yeah. tokens. There's nothing, no logic behind any of these. Um, and then Ethereum came on and then they just like introduced this whole concept of writing programs on blockchain. And that itself is massive. But like very early on, like uh, early days, nobody really cared about that. They just wanted to transfer their ETH and then Dexas didn't exist. So it's not even like a trading platform yet. So only like transferring from point A to point B or like sending it to the the, the exchange address so they can get cash mm-hmm. or USD or things like that. So very early on, like, yeah, the main problem was, okay, getting the trust for people because the, 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 the early investor or like early presale buyers, the, these hundred or 200 people that we are talking about, they're also very kind of technical, right? This is also like one of the problems we had forever with my Ether wallet because my Ether wallet looked like a tool, not like an actual uh, wallet interface because mm-hmm. initially when we built it, we built it for the developers because that's that was the 99% of the user base, like the technical people, not the brand new users. Yeah coming into the space. So when we built it, we built it as a tool. So it's like easily understandable by the technical users. And then we, it's easy for us to explain, oh, by the way, go here, put this code, and then you're good to go. Um, and then my wallet became a tool to accomplish a lot of things. Um, but like even interacting with contracts, like we were the only tool out there and, for a while. Yeah, I was just gonna say, we should say here that this was the first Ethereum wallet, basically. And that yeah. Was, that, yeah. So that's huge. Um, and and it makes sense, I guess, that you would be appealing to the de- developer community because, like you said, that those are the folks who are making all of this stuff happen at that point. Yeah, like that's that was the ninety nine percent, and then maybe one percent were like the new users, right? Like they're coming into the space, they just heard about Ethereum, they're like, okay, what do I do? Or you go to my wallet, and then follow these like six different steps to get something done, which was. Which was easy for a technical user, but we, it was not easy for like a new user. And then we we kind of saw over the years we saw that it's gradually shifting, right? The technical number of technical users are going away, not going away. Like the amount is re- like getting smaller compared to non-technical users. Mm-hmm. So now my Ether wallet is mainly built for the ninety nine percent of the non-technical users, not the technical users, because there are like 
hundreds of different tools for a technical user to do anything that they want to accomplish in Ethereum. Now it's like completely shifted the other way around. Yeah. And this is where I want to say for all our listeners, don't leave your crypto on an exchange. Take it off and put it in your wallet somewhere on the chain or a hardware wallet. Don't don't be yes. that person that gets their money stolen because the exchange gets hacked. Uh, definitely get a MyEther wallet uh, if you if you can. So what um what when did well I'm curious like there's a lot of different things you you've mentioned that you know Ethereum was like a hundred x or a thousand x more like interesting than the Bitcoin you mm-hmm. know, kind of use case. But there's a lot in like embedded in that. What, what what were the things that like really piqued your interest there? Was it the decentralization po- like possibility or writing code on a blockchain or like what what was it that kind of really drew you into it? Like even before, I think like the coding side of definitely intrigued my mind. Right, like I'm like oh, okay, think about the possibilities. Even 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 like the very simple use cases. For example, before mainnet launch, there was a testnet. Um, mm-hmm. I forgot the name for the testnet, but there Robston? was a testnet. Not no, no before Robston actually mainnet. There was another one. So before they did that testnet, and then they eventually like killed it, and then continued to mainnet. Um, so I was like one of the few people because uh, so they created that testnet to basically like brute force meaning try everything that you can think of to break the blockchain, break the Ethereum te- testnet. Yeah, that's when um, then, that's when Christoph Jens, he was running that for the foundation, right? Do you remember him? Oh, possible, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the names. Uh, he's the guy that created Slocket and ended up writing the code for the DAO. But before that, before that, he was at the foundation and he was in charge of like the different, you know, he was in charge of the different client teams and, and he was like, go try to break the network. You know, we're trying yeah. to make sure that, that we find all the bugs and, and make sure that everything's working correctly. I to... think the testnet was called Morden, M-O-R-D-E-N. Hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, and then I was like, and then the biggest problem with this testnet was like, okay, you can brute force it, you can try all these things, but like in order to do it, you need a testnet ETH. And then there was no way hmm. of getting testnet ETH. And then I was like, uh, this is like one of the very first posts I po- uh, posted on Reddit. I was like, oh, what if I create this like little smart contract, maybe like 20 lines of code, right? You deposit test ETH to that. And then people who need it can get like 10 ETH, every, 10 test ETH every single time they send a transaction to it. Yeah. It's a very simple smart contract, but like it just, it gave the ability for a lot more users to get into the space and then test Uh the testnet. Yeah. Um, so it's called a faucet, right? Faucet. That, yeah. But like yeah. this was a smart contract based faucet. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and then like hundreds of users were using that back then, uh, which was amazing, right? Like that's, it's just intrigued my, I, I just wanted to get back in. I was like, oh, I can code even more. But at some point in time, I realized that um, my coding skills are more necessary on the UX side of things, like mm-hmm. with my the wallet and stuff. And so I kind of moved away from Solidity coding. Mm-hmm. So um, since then, maybe, I mean, I still write Solidity contracts to like simplify things. Um, but other than that, I don't, I don't write like very. So more like applications rather than protocol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, let's say like if you need balances from like 100 different accounts, it's easy to do like one call to a Solidity contract and then get the balances. Yeah. Versus like hundred different calls to the node, 
So yeah, a bit more like, yeah, exactly. Like application level to simplify things. Um, that, things like that, definitely like, even though those are small, um, at that point in time, they were like very major needed requirements for the network mm-hmm. and then um yeah, I'm glad everything was, was being built from scratch right yeah <laughs> like there was nothing yeah that's that's what's been fascinating for me as a reporter is watching this kind of come to life almost in real time you know like all these yeah. things are, are coming to be um so that was around 2015 i think and then we're getting into 2016 and the dow happens it makes kind of it's a huge deal for ethereum yeah. it draws a lot of attention price of ether finally kind of got off the floor and went up to about 20 bucks right before the hack. What were you thinking back then? Like how worried were you when, um, the Dow was hacked and it seems it, it, as I write in my book, it was like, seemed like a very pivotal moment, like for this young ecosystem, Ethereum, it wasn't even a year old at that point. And it seemed like a lot of people felt like this thing could maybe go down in flames. Did you, did you have any thoughts like that? I'm not going to say no, because like at some point I was like, okay, it's possible that Ethereum will just like, you know, be nothing. But then again, like in a way at that point in time, this is why like this subject is so controversial because I still believe in like what Ethereum did was right. Because like, okay, it, it it's very new, right? Like the whole technology is new. And then there was this major hack that like, took money from all the major investors or like pre-sale buyers at that point. So in a way, if we continue to be that, we will be where ETC is today. So I don't think there will be enough growth because the moment it's like, let's say you invest in, I mean, this is the same thing that happened to, um, Concord, right? Like the, like the, all the big players started dying because like Concord planes started crashing and like, like, the, and then nobody wants to be on it. Yeah. So yeah. they're like, Oh, we don't have a business anymore. So there's no way to like keep Concord. And then they retired the whole plane. So it's, it will be, it would have been kind of something like that because like if all like the major people, like with the money just left because they're like, oh, we just lost millions of dollars on this. And then there's no point of just like continue to back this up. That would have yeah. been de- devastating for Ethereum. I don't I don't understand. I think you make a great point. Like Ethereum Classic is like the Concord to me. Like it should be gone, but it's not. <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. It's right? been like 51% it's a, attacked like numerous times. It's just like, yeah. like what, is, what is going on over there? But it's still, it's like you can't kill these blockchain things. They just kind of like become zombies. Um, yeah. And then um, ETH proof of work is the next one. Like, I don't even know whether it's functioning anymore. But we can talk about it when we get to that. I don't think, yeah, I mean, there was all those threats, like people are going to keep that part of the chain going, right? But I don't, at least as far as I have heard, that's not happening. Um, Okay, so, and then uh, what, uh, like, so then give me, like, because this is something I don't get a lot of, opportunity to do to talk to like people who are creating the infrastructure like you did like what's the what's the ups what are the ups and downs been for that um you know coming out of the dow um the in mid 2016 then into 2017 that's when the ico the initial coin offering kind of Mm -hmm. craze started uh ether went way up bitcoin hit twenty thousand dollars huge you know that's when 
I think crypto kind of first became a household word, you know, at least around maybe the Thanksgiving yeah. table. I remember that year in 2017, I was, I just come back to LA and I was in bars around that time. And I would just overhear people talking about crypto at bars. And I was like, this is crazy because yeah. I've been covering it for three years and it had been like definitely under the radar. And now it like burst into the scene. Like for somebody who's building the infrastructure and like, you know, people are relying on you, you know, wallet, the wallet is a very important function. It's your gateway to everything and it holds all your mm -hmm. coins. Uh, what's that been like? And like, have there been, have there been times when you've, you know, like really struggled with like technical issues or like, you know, the ups and downs of that I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that market pressure is like when things are just ramping up. And then again, like kind of the flip side when it's a crypto winter, like what, what is it like then as well? Yeah, no, I mean, we definitely run into a lot of uh, like technical learning uh, curve issues um, like in 2017, for example, because like we, we had an influx of users just immediately mm -hmm. because of ICOs. And then we were basically the only wallet that had ERC20 support, uh, which is the token, right? Um, and um, and one time, and then like all these pre-sales or like the crowd ICOs happen within 10 minutes and then they're already sold out within like 10 minutes. So it's like- Yeah, yeah a project would raise $50 million in 10 minutes or a hundred million yeah, dollars. It was, it was insane. Just, it was super insane. And the problem is like, this means like we have to support influx of users in like such a, like a small period of time. Mm -hmm. And then that means like our nodes need, needed to be up to date or like we had to put like extra nodes to handle that. Um, and um, I think it was, I forgot the exact ICO, but like one time it uh, might well have failed because of like too many people and then our nodes couldn't handle it. And mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of hard to explain people, oh no, it's, it's because of this. And then after that, I rewrote the whole infrastructure in the back end to support any amount of requests. So after that, we kind of, it was more of a learning period for us too, because like, how are we going to support this, in, this money, this many people in such a short period of time? So, I mean, thankfully now we don't have to worry about any of that because there are actual node providers out there, like mm -hmm. Infura, Alchemy, Rivet, um, you know, you name it, Quick Node. There are like hundred different people, Block Demon, um, right. yeah. doing exactly what I had to do in 2017 um, to support the ICO. Uh, and then, I mean, we are also using them. So we that's not part of a, that's not something that we have to worry about anymore. Um, and then also like around the same time, a lot of security around crypto websites, like, became a thing because like we had to be up to date on like, okay, what are the latest phishing scam? Like there were a million, like still up, even today we have, we used to have two companies actually looking for phishing sites uh, around my Ether wallet because they'll register like my Ether wallet without Y or like change yeah. it to some like UTF eight character. So we used, I think we still have around close to 10,000 10, my Ether wallet like names wow. that are registered. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so these are all like phishing attempts, right? Like, so we had to be like, we had to know what's happening. And then people will also send emails from my Ether wallet or like act like the emails are coming from my Ether wallet and be like, Hey, my Ether wallet is upgrading. Like, please put your private key here or like something mm -hmm. here 
to support this upgrade or something like that. And then, so yeah, like many different ups and downs. Um, and um, we, we, we had to learn from all of it and then we are still here. So <laughs> I believe we did something right. <laughs> yeah. What is, what is your big picture having gone through and been so, you know, I mean, you were working on the Ethereum testnet, as you said, which is amazing. And here you are today, uh, almost 10 years later, like what's the, what's the, what's the big picture for you right now in terms of where we are and, and adoption and, and, and where, um, maybe you had hoped things would be and where they are in actuality. Um, I, I mean, honestly, I was hoping that POS or it merge would have happened like a couple of years before mm -hmm. this year, but I just totally understand why it took so long. I, I, I know all the technical problems, so I understand that it was a necessary step to postpone it and to make sure that everything will go smoothly. And just like that, everything did go smoothly. And then it would have, I mean, only difference would have been like, we would have been far ahead of the curve right now, for example, in like, um, like maybe maybe scaling problems, right? Like ETH merge was like the next big thing, next big step in order to reduce the scaling problems. And then it just happened, which means like we are at least a year or two away from like these big scaling issues, like gas prices, for example. Yeah. Like it's still going to happen. And there are a lot of L2s, um, but like L2s has the liquidity problem. They don't have that many that much in liquidity. A lot of tokens. So it's, we've also seen a lot of bridge problems. You know, like that. Yeah. That that really oh, yeah. does not. That seems like a very much like a weakest link kind of thing. Yeah, and then who also wants to wait? You know, five to seven days to bridge back. Like I wish it was mm -hmm. kind of instant, but I mean, I I understand the technical problems around it. So I'm not saying oh, that's the solution. Everyone should follow this, but we would have been ahead of finding the proper solution if things happen sooner, but it is what it is. Um, we'll be, you know, we'll be in a better shape in at least a year or two. I love the development around Ethereum Are you surprised Ethereum that now. the Ether went down after the successful proof of stake and the merge? The merge? Yeah. Uh, I, I think like a lot of people were thinking the merge would be like a really big upgrade and like put ETH in like a really good position, but I, because like ETH upgrade or the merge wasn't technically nothing to the uh, average user because they didn't have to know anything yeah, about the upgrade. Yeah. Like everything no, I mean, went smoothly. If you they knew didn't what have was going anything. on, it was like yeah. highly kind of uncertain or like you didn't know, you know, it was going to go as smoothly as it did. Yeah. Uh, obviously, bad stuff could have happened. It didn't. And it was actually kind of boring when it all came and went. Like, um, yeah, I, I saw, I saw the pet. I was watching the the live stream, mm -hmm. and then I saw the panda on my like laptop. Pandas when like actually, you you would see a panda uh, yeah. uh, image on the screen when the actual merge happened. I saw it on my laptop, but I didn't see it on the live stream. I was like, oh no, something's <laughs> going wrong. Um, but it happened like literally three seconds after. But you know, I think like there was like fifty thousand people watching that live stream at that uh, yeah. point. Yeah, I, <laughs> I was doing, so. I was watching that myself. Yeah. Um, 
No, I mean, and I don't mean to discount it like it was boring. It's like, that's amazing because I really, I'm very impressed with what the Ethereum community pulled off and in, in such a very complicated, coordinated effort among seven different clients. And like, yeah. you know, it's like really amazing that they did it in real time. Um, that was amazing. Yeah. Do you, and so, how do you, you know, you talked about um, something like increasing the scale, like scalability, which is just for mm -hmm. listeners. It's like Ethereum still is only at, a, I want to say 15 to 20 transactions per second, somewhere yes. in that range. And it needs to get into the hundreds of thousands per second uh, if it's going to compete as like a global payments layer. Um, so efforts are underway to like bring that about, but proof of stake wasn't one of those, but it kind of lays the groundwork um, for other improvements. Maybe like, could you just give us uh, Kosala a high level like view of like, what are some of the things coming that could help with that um, scaling? Yeah, so initially um, there was this sharding um, uh, theory or like concept of sharding where like Ethereum chain actually splits into 64 different other chains and yeah. then each chain is responsible for its own little pocket of transactions. So you can think of it as, oh, we're going to like 64x the current throughput, right? And so would which that is have good. been like done by geographical region? Like it's like kind of around the world or is it, would it have been... Like I think it would have been around specific. like, yeah, it would have been around certain like contracts because like it didn't it didn't evolve into anything concrete yet. So mm -hmm. I don't know exactly like how the sharding would like which transaction will go to which. But if I have to make an assumption that it would be around um, contracts or like something like that, oh, like this contract transactions will go to this shard because it's easy because the, then that shard is aware of all the contract executions, contract data, and like storage, mm -hmm. all that. Um, but recently uh, Vitalik uh, said that it would be better with like things like ZK rollups and L2 solutions. Yeah. Um, which is like for, for, for listeners, it's like bundling, let's say thousand transactions into one big transaction and then sending it out on like a layer two solution. Yeah, um, so a lot of things are taken off chain and they're done on yeah. chain, but then those off chain transactions are still put back on chain afterwards. But um, so, but they don't have to like burden and slow down everything else in the meantime. Exactly. So um, so that's, that's like, that's probably the way we are headed because um, on like one of the next upgrades, I think um, Beacon Chain will have this extra space to put like a proof which is just needed for ZK, ZK rollups. So um, it's, uh, I like it's, yeah, there are definitely multiple different ways of scaling, but uh, everything, all the solutions actually needed POS to happen, the merge yeah. to happen other than L2, current L2s, right? Um, so since that now we have this, I think like we have a pretty good way of handling the scaling problems within like few years. Did you guys at My Ether Wallet have to do anything with the change to proof of stake? Like, did you have to change anything like, you know, under the hood, so to speak, or was it all? Um, nothing major for my Ether wallet itself, because like, like I mentioned, we are using like different node providers now. Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't handle the node services in-house. Um, but we do have our blockchain explorer, which is ethvm.com. Um, and we, we, yeah, we, for that, we had to like, um, 
nothing crazy again, but like we had to change the logic a little bit because now there are no like uh, block reward on uh, validators. It's just goes yeah. to the validator, things like that. So um, we we had to make some changes for E3M. But other than that, no, like from even from a company standpoint, it wasn't a major change. Yeah. And then, um, well, well, proof of stake didn't have anything to do with this either, but I think it's helping accelerate it. Is um, there's a EIP fifteen fifty nine, which was put into place, I believe, last year in twenty twenty one. Yeah. And part of that is that now, whenever there's an Ethereum transaction, some of the ether that has to be used to fund the transaction is destroyed. It's called yeah. it's burnt. It's burned. And I think we, just a couple of weeks ago, we hit for the first time after the merge, um, the like the first fully deflationary point in the Ethereum network where more ether was burned than was created through the validator network. Um, what is that? How do you interpret that to like, how do you explain that to people who might not have a huge technical understanding? What do you think that just means in, in, in the bigger picture? It, it's again, like it all comes down to supply and demand, right? Like if like this, so much supply and then not enough demand, the price goes down mm-hmm. and um, from market terms. And then if there's like less supply, but demand still stays the same, then the price goes up. So like we're finally hitting the point where the ETH is not meant much ETH is getting created, then it's getting burned. So which means like we are reducing the supply and then from market terms, like hopefully the users will see the advantage of this in like the near near future when there's like the, the supply is reducing but like the demand stays the same. So yeah, yeah I think it's pretty it's pretty good. Like I I EIP fifteen fifty nine, even though from a user perspective it might be like really confusing. Because I was like, why did we remove two one variable? Like it was in initially gas price. And then I was like, why did we remove two or one variable and then added two extras? Because that now there's tip and priority fees, I mean, priority fees and like gas fees. Um, but no, from like a technical perspective and market perspective, I, I love the idea of burning the gas gas fees. Yeah. What, um, so what are you excited about? What's, what do you, what plans do you have for my through wallet or like expansion or what, uh, are um, you guys, and I apologize, I should know this, but can you hold NFTs in a, in a my through wallet? Yes, my wallet yeah. complete. Yeah, fully supports all NFTs out there. Um, all of our products actually, like Me Wallet, is our mobile app. Um, and then E3M supports NFTs, which is a blockchain explorer. MyWallet.com does too. And then for my Ether Wallet, because uh, like uh, oh, it's my Ether Wallet is my like my Ether Ether Wallet, right? So we are we still want to be uh, one of the wallets out there in Ethereum's ecosystem where you can accomplish anything that you want to accomplish in the Ethereum ecosystem and in a safe manner. And then we are still like the wallet interface that supports basically every single wallet type, including like hardware wallets, mm-hmm. mobile wallets, uh, extension wallets, and, you know, like even, even private keys and mnemonics. People do ask me, why are you still supporting private keys and mnemonic? My question back to them is, okay, we were there since like 2015, August. And then there was only keys to files, private keys and mnemonic back then. And then people who created those wallets need, still need a way to access their wallet today. But, and then they only know about my Ether wallet. The moment my Ether wallet takes it out, they're going to go on Google and then search for a 
wallet that supports keys store and then or like private keys. The problem with that is that could be a phishing wallet. Mm. Like they can immediately lose access. So we are making every, making sure that we like put proper warnings, error messages, all that to make sure like they migrate to another way, like a hardware wallet or encrypt. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, before we actually take our private keys at mnemonic. So, um, yeah, you know, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day and I'd never heard of this before, but, um, they were talking about, uh, a, a, a potential move away from that sort of like private key setup where you've got a multi-party compute system, mm -hmm. MPC. Um, could you explain that a little bit or like what, and do you think that's maybe where this all might be headed? Um, I think it's it's probably related to account abstraction or like one of those EIPs. I'm not exactly sure uh, which one it is. Uh, but yeah, there's this uh, basically an algor algorithm called Shamir Secret Sharing SSS, which allows you to split one private key into n number of pieces. Mm -hmm. So you can, let's say you have 30 friends and then you want to split the private key among 30 friends and then, and then you can define X, which could be, you know, which could be one or which could be 30 any, or any, anywhere in the middle, which means you need either all your friends or few friends to say, give your thumbs up before it actually reconstruct the private key back and then give access to the funds. Yeah. So, and, and so this maybe, is way, maybe that's what, yeah, I think that's what this person was telling me about. And, um, yeah. it's, it's, uh, they basically said it's kind of like you're storing your private key in the cloud, but it's in pieces. And so, you, you know, as, yeah. as, as listeners probably know, if you lose your private key or somebody gets a hold of it, then, you know, you, you either have lost your funds or you've had them stolen from you, basically. So this is a way I think people are trying to think about, like, as we've been talking about kind of through the whole conversation, like, what's, a, what's an easier user experience, you know, like how to make this easier for folks. And maybe this MPC process is, is something that starts with like maybe a little bit of a centralized thing like you know you use I don't know discord or you know some kind of Facebook thing that helps you like start reconstituting your private key and then in time you can kind of take take it over yourself and handle that so there's no centralization factor but uh, I found that just really interesting yeah um, it's um I mean it definitely cool concept um which I think like a couple of groups are actually like doing it. Um, one good project that I'm aware of is called Web3 Oath. Mm. Um, that they're, they're doing something similar as well. So um, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's a pretty good concept. And, um, but the, the problem is like, still like, do I have that? Or like, even, I mean, I shouldn't say 30 friends, right? It could be like five friends that I share my key among. Mm. And, um, and um, they, they still need to like, figure out ways how to, like you said, is it like through Discord or is it through like Facebook Messenger mm -hmm. or do they create their own app to like reconstruct this whole process? Right. So but this there are some... A pretty good, like you, we've been talking about phishing, right? And you're saying about how, how yeah. many sites are out there trying. And that, a phishing scam is basically they're just trying to get your private key any way they can. And so I would yeah. imagine this would help guard people against that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. For yeah, sure. We, yeah. If like, if you are directly using a private key, right. But like, like if, for example, if you have a hardware wallet or something, it'll, it, the best case still is the hardware wallet. And then, um, 
And then you can use like, for example, Mi Wallet and multiple other mobile applications make use of uh, the smartphone secure enclave. Mm-hmm. So which kind of never like lets your keys out. So you can use that. Um, extensions are doing a pretty good job. Like we released Encrypt recently, which is E-N-K-R-Y-P-T. Um, it's a Web3 extension for Ethereum and uh, Polkadot ecosystem. And then we are going to add more and more chains like Bitcoin in the future, mm-hmm. um, Solana, Arbitrum, all those like different. So our way, our goal is to is like right now, like moving away from uh, still like my all the my to all products are completely focused on Ethereum. And we want to keep continuing adding features to the Ethereum ecosystem. But like as a company, we want to grow uh out of like Ethereum ecosystem as well, because as much as I love e- Ethereum, um, I, I I did not want to move away from Ethereum in the past, but like now I'm starting to understand that e- even, even when Ethereum is at its best, right? Like let's say like 50 years from now, there'll still be other blockchains that offer different set of features. Yeah, and yeah, users think, still needs to use that, like that set of features. Um, yeah, I, I've never envisioned a future where there was just one chain. I think yeah, it's, it's so, always going to be a lot of different chains that can interoperate because one thing, one chain is going to do something well, and another chain is going to do a different thing well, and that's fine. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's like a roadway system. You know, there's a driveway versus an interstate. You do different things on each. You know, and so exactly. Yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm finally starting to understand that, <laughs> um, and then yeah. that's why we created Encrypt, which is, it's it's in a way you can think of it as just keep remember or like have one mnemonic, which will give access to all the different blockchains because mm-hmm. like the future that I'm envisioning, users will not be not even know what blockchain they're interacting with. Like for example, like before Netflix used to say. Oh, we are using AWS. We are using this for this, and then, but like now, nobody cares. Yeah, like they could be using Google. They could be using AWS or a hybrid. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the goal. Is you don't want the common user to have any idea how the back end works. You just want it to work. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to facilitate that, we cannot like make users install five different wallets to mm. interact with five different apps and five different networks. So yeah, kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, Kosala, thank you so much for this. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you and thank you for opening up about your story and sharing that with me. Um, tell people how they can find you and, or a little bit more about where they can find my ether wallet. Yeah. And again, thank you so much for having me, Matt. Um, you can, uh, our Twitter, our Twitter is like the main way of contacting us or like tag us, uh, DM us. Uh, it's at MyEtherWallet. Make sure you see the verified sign. Uh, or you can email us at support yeah, at myEtherWallet.com. <laughs> yeah, the blue yeah, check mark. The blue check mark. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, you can, again, you can uh, reach out at support at myEtherWallet.com if you have any questions. Uh, my Twitter username is at KVHNuke, N-U-K-E underscore. I do not have a verified sign, so uh, uh, it's probably better if you if you I, message. I'll have to get you one. I've got one. I, I might have a spare one in my back pocket. I can loan you. <laughs> oh, you do? That would be do. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> one of the perks of working at Bloomberg News for a long time was I Ooh. got a, a verified account. But oh my gosh, that's you, awesome! My 
my oldest son's friends all make fun of me because I'm verified on Twitter. They think that's like super lame. <laughs> oh, oh they, they don't like the verified? I, no, I don't know. For some reason, they, they think it's hilarious that I'm verified on Twitter. And I, You're verified? Don't, I don't quite understand it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's well, funny. And lastly, and I'm I'm sure I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm, is your mom okay with you not being a doctor these days? She she was very supportive the moment I decided I'm gonna move to US. I was like, I I have to do this. I have to be an engineer. My mom was like, I understand. <laughs> and ever since then, she's extremely supportive. Um, she's still in 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 Sri Lanka, but um, I I'm hoping she's proud of me. Oh, I can't imagine she's not, Gosla. So again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a really pleasure talking to you. And um, hopefully uh, we will meet someday in, in person here in Los Angeles. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you so much for having me again. That's it for this episode of Decent People. We are produced by Matt Solon. Music is courtesy of Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Take care.